This is the podcast, Notable Speeches, and we thank you for listening. Today, an address by the longtime president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, delivered at an October conference held to discuss the topic, Global Shakeup in the 21st Century. In his remarks, Mr. Putin talks about many of the challenges common to nations across the world, including the coronavirus pandemic, social discontent, and concerns about ethical considerations related to new technologies. He also spoke about the realignment of the balance of power between nations and the challenges of fostering a stable world order. But the content among Mr. Putin's comments that generated the most press coverage, certainly in the West, was his pointed criticism of what he called the aggressive dogmatism that has taken hold in the U.S. and elsewhere under the banner of social progress. He specifically noted the rise of cancel culture, an anti-racist movement that in fact fosters racism, and attempts by some to suppress the reality that there are inherent biological distinctions between men and women. Mr. Putin also said the growing intolerance in the West toward people with traditional views echoes the tactics of the revolutionary Russian Bolshevik movement of the early 20th century. The Bolsheviks, he noted, were absolutely intolerant of opinions different from their own. Mr. Putin also said that the policies of his government are rooted in time-tested tradition and reflect a healthy and optimistic conservatism. Vladimir Putin has been the president of Russia since 2012. He served an earlier term in that office as well, from 2000 to 2008. He has held a firm grip on power, and we should note that human rights organizations have accused the Putin government of persecuting political opponents, sometimes even putting them in jail. This speech by President Putin ran about 35 minutes. It's been abridged slightly for this podcast. You'll hear his remarks translated into English, along with Mr. Putin's voice in Russian in the background. Here is Russian President Vladimir Putin speaking on October 21st at a conference sponsored by the Moscow-based think tank and discussion forum known as the Valdai Discussion Club. Ladies and gentlemen, to begin with, I would like to thank you for coming to Russia, taking part in the Valdai Club events. As always, during these meetings, you raise pressing issues and hold comprehensive discussions of these issues that, without exaggeration, matter for people around the world. Once again, the key theme of the forum was put in a straightforward, I would even say point-blank manner. Global shake-up in the 21st century, the individual, values, and the state. Indeed, we are living in an era of great change. We must be aware of the danger of these times and be ready to counter it. And not just one threat, but many diverse threats that can arise in this era of change. However, it is no less important to recall that times of change present opportunities that must not be missed. The question is where to move, what to give up, what to revise or adjust. In saying this, I am convinced that it is necessary to fight for real values, upholding them in every way. Humanity entered into a new era about three decades ago when the main conditions were created for ending military, political, and ideological confrontation. A search for a new balance 
sustainable relations in the social, political, economic, cultural and military areas and support for the world system was launched at that time. We were looking for this support but must say that we did not find it, at least so far. Meanwhile, those who felt like the winners after the end of the Cold War and thought they climbed Mount Olympus soon discovered that the ground was falling away. In general, it must have seemed that we adjusted to this continuous inconstancy, unpredictability and permanent state of transition. But this did not happen either. I would like to add that the transformation that we are seeing and are part of is of a different caliber than the changes that repeatedly occurred in human history. This is not simply a shift in the balance of forces or scientific and technological breakthroughs, though both are also taking place. Today, we are facing systemic changes in all directions, from the increasingly complicated geophysical condition of our planet to a more paradoxical interpretation of what a human is and what the reasons for his existence are. Let us look around. Firstly, climate change and environmental degradation are so obvious that even the most careless people can no longer dismiss them. One can continue to engage in scientific debates about the mechanisms behind the ongoing processes, but it is impossible to deny that these processes are getting worse and something needs to be done. It sometimes seems that any geopolitical, scientific and technical or ideological rivalry becomes pointless in this context. If the winners will not have enough air to breathe or nothing to drink, the coronavirus pandemic has become another reminder of how fragile our community is, how vulnerable it is. And our most important task is to ensure humanity a safe existence and resilience. To increase our chance of survival in the face of cataclysms, we absolutely need to rethink how we go about our lives, how we run our households, how cities develop or how they should develop. We need to reconsider economic development priorities of entire states. Everyone is saying that the current model of capitalism, which underlies the social structure in the overwhelming majority of countries, has run its course and no longer offers a solution to a host of increasingly tangled differences. Everywhere, even in the richest countries and regions, the uneven distribution of material wealth has exacerbated inequality, primarily inequality of opportunities, both within individual societies and at the international level. No doubt, these problems threaten us with major and deep social divisions. Furthermore, a number of countries and even entire regions are regularly hit by food crises. There is every reason to believe that this crisis will become worse in the near future and may reach extreme forms. There are also shortages of water and electricity, not to mention poverty, high unemployment rates or lack of adequate health care. Lagging countries are fully aware of that and are losing faith in the prospects of ever catching up with the leaders. Disappointment spurs aggression and pushes people to join the ranks of extremists. People in these countries have a growing sense of unfulfilled and failed expectations and the lack of any opportunities not only for themselves but for their children as well. This is what makes them look for better lives and results in uncontrolled migration, which in turn creates fertile ground for social discontent in more prosperous countries. The technological revolution, impressive achievements in artificial intelligence, electronics, communications, genetics, bioengineering and medicine open up enormous opportunities, but at the same time, in practical terms, they raise philosophical, moral and spiritual questions that were until recently 
the exclusive domain of science fiction writers. What will happen if machines surpass humans in the ability to think? Where is the limit of interference in the human body, beyond which a person ceases being himself and turns into some other entity? What are the general ethical limits in the world where the potential of science and machines are becoming almost boundless? What will this mean for each of us, for our descendants, our nearest descendants, our children and grandchildren? These changes are gaining momentum, and they certainly cannot be stopped. All of us will have to deal with the consequences, regardless of our political systems, economic condition or prevailing ideology. Verbally, all states talk about their commitment to the ideals of cooperation and a willingness to work together for resolving common problems. But unfortunately, these are just words. In reality, the opposite is happening, and the pandemic has served to fuel the negative trends that emerged long ago and are now only getting worse. The approach based on the proverb, your own shirt is closer to the body, has finally become common and is now no longer even concealed. Moreover, this is often even a matter of boasting and brandishing. Egotistic interests prevail over the notion of the common good. Of course, the problem is not just the ill will of certain states and notorious elites. It is more complicated than that, in my opinion. In general, life is seldom divided into black and white, Every government, every leader, is primarily responsible to his own compatriots, obviously. The main goal is to ensure their security, peace, and prosperity. So, international, transnational issues will never be as important for a national leadership as domestic stability. In general, this is normal and correct. We need to face the fact that global governance institutions are not always effective, and their capabilities are not always up to the challenge posed by the dynamics of global processes. In this sense, the pandemic could help. It clearly showed which institutions have what it takes, and which need fine-tuning. The realignment of the balance of power presupposes a redistribution of shares in favor of rising and developing countries that until now felt left out. To put it bluntly, the Western domination of international affairs, which began several centuries ago and for a short period was almost absolute in the late 20th century, is giving way to a much more diverse system. This transformation is not a mechanical process, and in its own way, one might even say, is unparalleled. Arguably, political history has no examples of a stable world order being established without a big war and its outcomes as the basis, as was the case after World War II. So we have a chance to create an extremely favorable precedent. The attempt to create it after the end of the Cold War on the basis of Western domination failed, as we can see. The current state of international affairs is a product of that very failure, and we must learn from this. Colleagues, what do you think are the starting points of this complex realignment process? Let me try to summarize the talking points. First, the coronavirus pandemic has clearly shown that the international order is structured around nation-states. In recent decades, many have tossed about fancy concepts claiming that the role of the state was outdated and outgoing. Globalization supposedly made national borders an anachronism and sovereignty an obstacle to prosperity. But events went in the opposite direction. Only sovereign states can effectively respond to the challenges of the times and the demands of the citizens. 
Accordingly, any effective international order should take into account the interests and capabilities of the state and proceed on that basis and not try to prove that they should not exist. Furthermore, it is impossible to impose anything on anyone, be it the principles underlying the socio-political structure or values that someone, for their own reasons, has called universal. After all, it is clear that when a real crisis strikes, there is only one universal value left, and that is human life, which each state decides for itself how to best protect based on its abilities, culture and traditions. The second point I would like to draw your attention to is the scale of change that forces us to act extremely cautiously if only for reasons of self-preservation. The state and society must not respond radically to qualitative shifts in technology, dramatic environmental changes or the destruction of traditional systems. It is easier to destroy than to create, as we all know. We in Russia know this very well, regrettably from our own experience, which we have had several times. Just over a century ago, Russia objectively faced serious problems, including because of the ongoing World War I, but its problems were not bigger and possibly even smaller or not as acute as the problems the other countries faced, and Russia could have dealt with its problems gradually and in a civilized manner. But revolutionary shocks led to the collapse and disintegration of a great power. The second time this happened, 30 years ago, when a potentially very powerful nation failed to enter the path of urgently needed, flexible, but thoroughly substantiated reforms at the right time. And as a result, it fell victim to all kinds of dogmatists, both reactionary ones and the so-called progressives. These examples from our history allow us to say that revolutions are not a way to settle a crisis, but a way to aggravate it. No revolution was worth the damage it did to the human potential. Third, the importance of a solid support in the sphere of morals, ethics and values is increasing dramatically in the modern fragile world. In point of fact, values are a product, a unique product, of cultural and historical development of any nation. The mutual interlacing of nations definitely enriches them. Openness expands their horizons and allows them to take a fresh look at their own traditions. But the process must be organic, and it can never be rapid. Any alien elements will be rejected anyway, possibly bluntly. We look in amazement at the processes underway in the countries which have been traditionally looked at as the standard bearers of progress. Of course, the social and cultural shocks that are taking place in the United States and Western Europe are none of our business. We are keeping out of this. Some people in the West believe that an aggressive elimination of entire pages from their own history, reverse discrimination against the majority in the interests of a minority, and the demand to give up the traditional notions of mother, father, family, and even gender, they believe that all of these are the mileposts on the path towards social renewal. Listen, I would like to point out once again that they have a right to do this. We are keeping out of this. But we would like to ask them to keep out of our business as well. We have a different viewpoint, at least the overwhelming majority of Russian society, it would be more correct to put it this way, has a different opinion on this matter. We believe that we must rely on our own spiritual values, our historical tradition, and the culture of our multi-ethnic nation.
The advocates of so-called social progress believe they are introducing humanity to some kind of a new and better consciousness. But the prescriptions are not new at all. It may come as a surprise to some people, but Russia has been there already. After the 1917 revolution, the Bolsheviks, relying on the dogmas of Marx and Engels, also said that they would change existing ways and customs, and not just political and economic ones, but the very notion of human morality and the foundations of a healthy society. The destruction of age-old values, religion, and relations between people, up to and including the total rejection of family, encouragement to inform on loved ones. All this was proclaimed progress, and by the way, was widely supported around the world back then, and was quite fashionable, same as today. By the way, the Bolsheviks were absolutely intolerant of opinions other than theirs. This, I believe, should call to mind some of what we are witnessing now. Looking at what is happening in a number of Western countries, we are amazed to see the domestic practices which we fortunately have left, I hope, in the distant past. The fight for equality and against discrimination has turned into aggressive dogmatism bordering on absurdity when the works of the great authors of the past, such as Shakespeare, are no longer taught at schools or universities because their ideas are believed to be backward. The classics are declared backward and ignorant of the importance of gender or race in Hollywood, memos are distributed about proper storytelling and how many characters of what color or gender should be in a movie. This is even worse than the agitprop department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Countering acts of racism is a necessary and noble cause, but the new cancel culture has turned it into reverse discrimination, that is, reverse racism. The obsessive emphasis on race is further dividing people when the real fighters for civil rights dreamed precisely about erasing differences and refusing to divide people by their skin color. I specifically asked my colleagues to find the following quote from Martin Luther King. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by their character. This is the true value. However, things are turning out differently there. By the way, the absolute majority of Russian people do not think that the color of a person's skin or their gender is an important matter. Each of us is a human being. This is what matters. In a number of Western countries, the debate over men's and women's rights has turned into a perfect phantasmagoria. Zealots of these new approaches even go so far as to want to abolish these concepts altogether. Anyone who dares mention that men and women actually exist, which is a biological fact, risk being ostracized. Parent number one, and parent number two, birthing parent instead of mother, and human milk replacing breast milk, because it might upset the people who are unsure about their own gender. I repeat, this is nothing new. In the 1920s, the so-called Soviet Kulturtragers also invented some new speak, believing they were creating a new consciousness and changing values that way. They've made such a mess, it still makes one shudder at times. Not to mention some truly monstrous things when children are taught from an early age that a boy can easily become a girl, and vice versa. That is, the teachers actually impose on them a choice we supposedly all have. 
They do so while shutting the parents out of the process and forcing the child to make decisions that can upend their entire life. They do not even bother to consult with child psychologists. Is a child at this age even capable of making a decision of this kind? This verges on a crime against humanity, and it is being done in the name and under the banner of progress. In shaping our approaches, we will be guided by a healthy conservatism. When the world is going through a structural disruption, the importance of reasonable conservatism as the foundation for a political course has skyrocketed, precisely because of the multiplying risks and dangers and the fragility of the reality around us. This conservative approach is not about an ignorant traditionalism, a fear of change or a restraining game, much less about withdrawing into our own shell. It is primarily about reliance on a time-tested tradition, the preservation and growth of the population, a realistic assessment of oneself and others, a precise alignment of priorities, a correlation of necessity and possibility, a prudent formulation of goals, and a fundamental rejection of extremism as a method. And frankly, in the impending period of global reconstruction, which may take quite a long time, with its final design being uncertain, Moderate conservatism is the most reasonable line of conduct, as far as I see it. It will inevitably change at some point, but so far, do no harm, the guiding principle in medicine seems to be the most rational one. Noli nocere, as they say in Latin. Again, for us in Russia, these are not some speculative postulates, but lessons from our difficult and sometimes tragic history. The cost of ill-conceived social experiments is sometimes beyond estimation. Such actions can destroy not only the material, but also the spiritual foundations of human existence, leaving behind moral wreckage where nothing can be built to replace it for a long time. Finally, there is one more point I want to make. We understand all too well that resolving many urgent problems the world has been facing would be impossible without close international cooperation. However, we need to be realistic. Most of the pretty slogans about coming up with global solutions to global problems that we have been hearing since the late 20th century will never become reality. To achieve a global solution, states and people have to transfer their sovereign rights to supranational structures to an extent that few, if any, would accept. This is primarily attributable to the fact that you have to answer for the outcomes of such policies, not to some global public, but to your citizens and voters. However, this does not mean that exercising some restraint for the sake of bringing about solutions to global challenges is impossible. After all, a global challenge is a challenge for all of us together, and to each of us in particular. If everyone saw a way to benefit from cooperation in overcoming these challenges, this would definitely leave us better equipped to work together. One of the ways to promote these efforts could be, for example, to draw up, at the UN level, a list of challenges and threats that specific countries face, with details of how they could affect other countries. This effort could involve experts from various countries and academic fields, including you, my colleagues. We believe that developing a roadmap of this kind could inspire many countries to see global issues in a new light and understand how cooperation could be beneficial for them. I've already mentioned the challenges international institutions are facing. Unfortunately, this is an obvious fact. It is now a question of reforming or closing some of them. 
However, the United Nations, as the central international institution, retains its enduring value, at least for now. I believe that in our turbulent world it is the UN that brings a touch of reasonable conservatism into international relations, something that is so important for normalizing the situation. Many criticize the UN for failing to adapt to a rapidly changing world. In part, this is true, but it is not the UN, but primarily its members, who are to blame for this. In addition, this international body promotes not only international norms, but also the rule-making spirit, which is based on the principles of equality and maximum consideration for everyone's opinions. Our mission is to preserve this heritage while reforming the organization. However, in doing so, we need to make sure that we do not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes. Friends, the changes mentioned here are relevant to all countries and peoples. Just like everyone else, we are searching for answers to the most urgent challenges of our time. Of course, no one has any ready-made recipes. However, I would like to venture to say that our country has an advantage. Let me explain what this advantage is. It is to do with our historical experience. You may have noticed that I have referred to it several times in the course of my remarks. Unfortunately, we had to bring back many sad memories. But at least our society has developed what they now refer to as herd immunity to extremism that paves the way to upheavals and socioeconomic cataclysms. People really value stability and being able to live normal lives and to prosper while confident that the irresponsible aspirations of yet another group of revolutionaries will not upend their plans and aspirations. Many have vivid memories of what happened 30 years ago and all the pain it took to climb out of the ditch where our country and our society found themselves after the USSR fell apart. The conservative views we hold are an optimistic conservatism, which is what matters the most. We believe stable, positive development to be possible. It all depends primarily on our own efforts. Of course, we are ready to work with our partners on common, noble causes. Thank you. Russian President Vladimir Putin last month at a conference organized by the Valdai Discussion Club. The event took place in the Russian resort city of Sochi. Please subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast. If you haven't yet done so, search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app of your choice. And you can follow us on Twitter and Parler at Notable Speeches. To offer a comment or suggestion, send an email to feedback at notablespeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening.